Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, and hopefully you do, or somewhere someone around you does, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 today. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been asking the question, what is church? And so we've talked about how God has, has brought about His church, that we are the body of Christ, and that we have been given life by pure grace, by having faith that Jesus died for our sins, was resurrected from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. So here we are in week four of asking ourselves, what is the church? And I think right here we get to the most important, well, one of the most important aspects of what it means to be the church. And that is the unity that we have with God and with each other. And this is one of the most beautiful things of all of Christianity. God does not just bring us into a relationship with Him. He brings us into a relationship with multitudes of brothers and sisters in the faith. So the saints of old, we are, we are united with them, even far into the future until Christ returns. We are all together in this one body. So when we are adopted into the family of God, it's just like any adoption that happens all over the world. That child that's adopted, they don't just get new parents, they get new siblings as well. So they're united in one family, just as we as followers of Christ are united together as one body. So what we're going to look at this morning is three incredibly crucial aspects of, of what it means to be united as the church and to have the unity that we have with the Lord. So Tony Merida is a pastor, and he outlines this section of Scripture like this uh, in, in three ways. There's alienation, reconciliation, and identification. So alienation, reconciliation, and identification. So that's the path that we're going to try to follow here this morning, and we're going to see that we were alienated, alienated from God. But in Christ, we are now reconciled to him, and we are now identified as the people of God. So before we really dive into this, we're going to pray together that the Lord would, would open up his word for us this morning. Dear Lord, I know that as we look at this topic of, of the unity of the church, that, that for some this might be a, a touchy aspect based on their previous relationship with the church or, or, or with a Christian or someone that may have even claimed to be a Christian. I just pray that... that you open this up to us so that we can embrace the unity that you give us as members of your household. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so before we even get to the three main points, I think it's important for us to track Paul's argument that he's made throughout the first two chapters here in Ephesians. Now, the first thing that Paul says in verse 11 is the word therefore. And what I've told the students, and I think I've even told you guys, is that anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to ask yourself the question, what is it there for? And so, anytime that this happens in Scripture, what we need to do is that, or what we need to realize is that it points back to what the author had already stated. So, Paul, he's reiterating what has already been said at the beginning of chapter two by highlighting that God is, is rich in mercy and love and that he sent Christ to die for us and that we have been saved by grace through faith. And now we should walk the path that the Lord has laid before us. Now, instead of us just following this with a, uh, or just following it with a continuation of an amazing future that we have in Christ, Paul points to the past in verses 11 and 12. So I'll mention it here uh, just kind of briefly because we're, we're going to dwell on it later. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
Now, by connecting these verses together, Paul actually is pointing way back to chapter 1. So, in my understanding of what Scripture is saying here, Paul is saying that verse 11 refers not just to verse 10 of chapter 2 or all of chapter 2, but it refers to all of what Paul had already said in chapter 1. So, I don't want to preach again what Wayne has been saying the last three weeks, but in order for us to really get the unity that is stressed in these verses, we need to go back to chapter 1. Paul has made it known in these chapters that the unity that we enjoy, it does not start with us. The unity that we have in God's household, it does not find its source in us. So you are not the reason that you are united to God. You are not the source of that unity. So if we look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 again, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Notice, it's not according to the purpose of our will. We did not choose ourselves. God chose us. God the Father is the starting point of this unity. So if we track Paul's argument we see that God the Father has blessed us in Christ and he has chosen us in him. So the unity, like I said, that we enjoy as members of God's church starts not because we chose God, but because he set his sight on us first. We know that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. He is the head of the church. We are the body. We have been united to him. So in order for us to really appreciate what What Paul is saying here in verses 11 through 22, we need to acknowledge the fact that the only reason that we are united, not just to the church, but to God himself, is because what Christ has already done. That is how we appreciate these these verses, because God has made it so. We can embrace the unity because God has decreed it. God has brought it forth. So here's something that you may not have noticed. Paul, as he's making this argument, he intentionally starts with God as the starting point and then works down to us on a more personal level. So what we see here in chapter 1, we see God is the starting point. Then he works to the church at large at the end of chapter 1. This is where Paul starts referring to us as the body of Christ. And then in chapter 2, he begins addressing the Gentile believers separately from the Jewish believer. So in chapter 1, he's addressing the church as a whole, Jewish and Gentile together. Here in chapter 2, we see the stress come down to not the Jewish believers, but just to the Gentile believers. And so here's what we see from this, is that what God has started, the unity that God has started, God will complete. Salvation is not so otherworldly that we are incapable of being brought into it. So what God has given to the church, he has given to you. He has given it to me personally. So with that in our minds, we we have this idea of of where unity starts. We see just how important unity is for us as followers of Christ. And so let's look at the alienation, or as I call it, the who we were aspect of our faith. So let's read verse 12 uh, one more time. Paul says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. All right, so we've got to keep in mind here that Paul is addressing Gentiles. And if you don't know what Gentiles are, think of anyone that isn't Jewish. And 
Chances are, if you are not Jewish, you are not born in Israel, you are not uh, descended physically from Abraham, so he is addressing us as the Gentile church. And so, did you notice as I was reading this verse, or even when Wayne was reading it, that there's three different levels of separation that Paul talks about? We see a separation from Christ, an alienation or a separation from Israel, and Gentiles that were separated from the covenants of the promise. And all of this, it results in them being without hope and without God. So they were Christless, they were hopeless, they were ultimately godless. So I think that one of the most important things that we can do as Christians in order to appreciate who we are after the cross is to look back to who we were before the cross. It is amazing to look at who I was before I came to Jesus to see how the Lord is shaping me into who I am now. And so, Paul, he starts with the absolute worst thing that anyone can be. He talks of separation from Christ. So what does it really mean to be separated from Christ? Paul is not just talking about physical separation. Obviously, at this point, Christ has already ascended. Physically, he was not on earth. We know now physically he is not on earth. So he is clearly referring to a spiritual degree of separation. Now, to be separated from Christ, it is not just worrying and it's not just concerning. It is damning. And so, to be separated from Christ means that we are on a one-way ticket, one-way path to hell. If we are not united to Christ, we are unable to do anything to save ourselves. This is what Paul has already told us previously here in Ephesians 2. And so, is there anything that sounds more terrible than a life apart from the joy and peace that can be found in Christ? Now, one of the problems that we have in the world today is that we talk about hell as if it doesn't matter or if it's not that big of a deal. We say things all the time like, I've had a hell of a day or I've had a hell of a time or that was a hell of a game. And the way that we talk about hell shows that we have no idea what we're talking about. We have very little comprehension of what it means. So in order to appreciate the salvation that Christ offers, we need to know what he has truly saved us from. Matthew 25, 46 says that hell is a place of eternal punishment. That is one of the most terrifying, if not the most terrifying aspects of hell. The fact that it is eternal and never-ending should terrify us. Thomas Watson, he said, The wicked in hell shall be always dying but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? The word ever breaks the heart. Jonathan Edwards, most of you probably know him from his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said that for the wicked in hell, they would endure the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or a day, but for millions of millions of ages, at the end of which they would know that their torment was no nearer to an end than ever before, and that they would never, never be delivered. Now, do we really believe in the horrors of hell, or do we think of it as just some device that is used to scare people into heaven? I remember when I was a kid that uh, I was much more, afraid of hell, uh, much more afraid of hell than I was desiring of Jesus. My desire for heaven does not equal Sal. My fear of hell does not equal salvation. In Revelation 20:15, we read that anyone whose name was not found in the book of life, that they would be thrown into a lake of fire, a fire that burns forever. Hell is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 13:50. It is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in Mark 9:48. It is a place of shame and everlasting contempt, Daniel 12:2. It is a place of judgment and wrath. George Whitfield, one of the great 
Puritan preachers of his day would preach with tears in his eyes as he talked about it. Charles Spurgeon once said that if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. But let me tell you the worst aspect of, of hell. To do that, we need to look at Revelation 14, sin. He's, here we see uh, the Lord addressing the sinner and the wicked. And he says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. So here's the part that should be terrifying to us. The torment will be in the presence of God. That torment of hell, the worst aspect of hell, will be in the presence of God. And we might be thinking, well, this is just imagery, right? And that might be so, but what is it an image of? There's a lot of imagery in the Bible, but I highly doubt that, that when the Bible talks about hell, it's not talking about a walk on the beach. The thing that makes hell so horrible is not that God is not there. I would say that the thing that makes it so horrible is the fact that he is there. Because the aspect of him that is there is not the loving father that we know as we come to Jesus. The aspect or the the identity of him is that he is present as a righteous judge whose wrath is directed towards your sin and my sin. Michael Horton, he described it like this. Hell is not ultimately about fire, but about God. Whatever the exact nature of the physical punishments, the real terror awaiting the unrepentant is God himself in his inescapable presence forever with his face turned against them. So we know hell is horrible, that hell is real, and that was the destiny that was before us apart from Christ. So to be alienated from Christ is to be alienated from redemption. To be separated from Christ, like what Paul says here, is to be without hope in the world, just like Paul says at the end of this verse. Now you would think that Paul could have just left us with that to ponder over and that 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 would be enough for us to truly appreciate being united in Christ, right? But no, there's still two levels of separation that we see here. We see that as Gentiles, we were alienated alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And so what this means is that as Gentiles, we were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and the blessing that came as being God's chosen and covenant people. The fact that we were foreigners from the nation of Israel meant that we were unaware of the promised Messiah that was to come into the world. Now, how could the Gentiles know about the need of a Savior if they were not familiar with what the Old Testament said? So, despite the covenant relationship that the Lord had with the people of Israel, he did not leave the Gentiles without hope. The Old Testament is full of of the idea that one day God is going to bring hope and peace to the Gentiles. All the way back in Genesis 22 The Lord says to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so I think it's interesting here, right, in in this statement that is being made to the father of the Jewish people, that that through his offspring, ultimately through Jesus Christ, all nations shall be blessed, not just the Jewish people. So Abraham, he was aware of a future blessing that was to be for all people, not just his physical offspring. Isaiah 49, 6, we read, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So even in the time of Isaiah, we see that the gospel message was going to be this beacon of hope, not just for one particular people group, but would be a beacon of hope and salvation to the ends of the earth. 
The prophet Zechariah, he says in Zechariah 2.11, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. The Old Testament is just full of all of these examples of God extending grace to people that, that quite frankly, don't deserve grace, that don't deserve mercy. We see this in the story of Rahab, in the story of Ruth. We see it in God sending Jonah to the, Ninev- to the Ninevites to preach a message of repentance. Now, these aren't all the examples, but these are some of the more noteworthy ones. The Bible is, it very clearly shows us that God has a plan to bring hope and salvation to all people, not just one particular people group of one time in one place. God's plan for salvation, it's always been world-centered, not Jewish-centered. So the last separation that we see is, is that as Gentiles, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because I kind of mentioned it as we were talking in the last point here. But what this means is that the Gentiles had no idea about the covenant promises of the Lord. So they didn't know about the covenants made to Adam. They didn't know about the covenants made to Noah or to Moses or to David or to Israel. They were strangers to them all. So something needs to happen to change all that, right? In order for us to have hope, in order for anyone to have hope, something needs to change. And this is where we get to reconciliation. So we've seen who we were. Now we can see who we are. Now we've heard all of these horrible truths about our separation from Christ and the covenant promises. We've heard that we were without hope and without God in verse 12. But thankfully, we get verses 13 and 14. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We see here that Jesus Christ is the one that has brought unity. He has reconciled us to himself by his blood. Because he has done that, we can have peace with God. In Christ, we've been adopted, we've been justified, reconciled. We are children of God. And and sometimes you just need to stop and think like, I am a child of the sovereign king of the universe, the creator over all things. If you ever want to feel like you matter or that you're important, remind yourself, hey, Jesus Christ loves me. He has died for me. The king of the universe has set his sight on me. Like that is a, 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 humbling, a humbling thing at one hand and also a, an amazing thing on the other. And so Paul, notice the, the language that Paul uses in these verses. He, he says that the Lord has brought peace, that Christ has made us one in him, that he broke down the divided wall of hostility. He has created us new. He has killed the hostility between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. So all of these things and so much more Christ has done for us. And I don't know if you notice, but in this section right here, the language that Paul uses changes. Paul starts saying we and us instead of you when he refers to the Gentiles. So Tony Merida, he says this, Paul also shifts from you to we and our in this section. Both Jew and Gentile have the same hope, Christ's atoning death, through his reconciling work on the cross. That peace that we have longed for, that sense of meaning that we have searched for for so long, that that love that we have longed for and craved, it has found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's been united to, it has united us with him. So who we are in Christ is not who we were. Who I once was is not who I am going to be. So we know that as Christians, we will be made new. We will be with Christ. We won't be weighed down by sin or sickness or the world or doubt any longer or any other problem 
They are going to vanish away and we will be made new in the Lord. Like the Bible says, the perishable will put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, we aren't there yet. We know that we still have a little bit ways to go. Um, It's kind of like what I've mentioned before of when you look at Abraham and his life. It was a constant story of God saying, hey, go to this place. And Abraham would say, well, when will I get there? To which the Lord just says, basically, hey, I'll tell you when you get there. You just need to keep walking in faith. So right now, that's the life that we have. We're walking in faith. We know that there is a promise waiting for us. And so, with that in mind, we can rejoice. We're not there yet, but we know that we will be. So we've talked about alienation. We've talked about reconciliation. Now we can talk about our new identification. And that is the unity that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. So going back to verses 18 through 22, Paul says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I don't know if you noticed this, but in this section here, just as there were three separations in chapter 12, we now see three things that that come together in verse 19. We see a contrast, right? So we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. It's almost this complete reversal of what we see in verse 12. Once we were foreigners, now we are no longer strangers. We were cut off from the covenants of the promise, and now we are fellow citizens with the saints. We were separated from Christ, but now we are in his household. That is a total reversal. So now that this has happened, we are united with one another to be a dwelling place for the Lord by the Spirit. So what we see here is the same thing that Paul says in other places, like in 1 Corinthians 12, when he says that, For just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Christ did not come to save a person. He came to create a people. He came to save a group of people that has extended centuries. He came so that we might become the church being unified through our faith in him. We are one body united in Christ with himself being the chief cornerstone. So through Christ, that age-old division of Jew and Gentile, that division has been torn down and has been replaced by something so much greater. It's been replaced by one united body the church. So what does this mean for us today? I'm going to leave you with with three things kind of quickly. The first one is this. We are all in this together. Now, for some of the kids, you may have started singing the high school musical song there. That's not where I'm going with this. But through Christ, we are all united together. So what this means is that when we see our brothers and sisters hurting, we hurt with them. We pray with them. We love them. We are to be each other's biggest fans and greatest supporters. Now, we're not always going to get it right. I think you could very easily list many different ways that that you personally have not gotten it right when it comes to being a follower of Christ or being a member of a church. But what we know is that the Lord has brought us together to build us up into God's dwelling place. Number two is that we are never truly alone. I heard one pastor say it like this, and it's a little bit of a longer quote. He said, 
The Christian may be an orphan in the world with no earthly family. He may not have a spouse or he may lose the spouse he loved. The Christian may be ostracized by the culture for his beliefs. He may find himself surrounded by people of a completely different cultural background. But the Christian in covenant with a local church is never alone. As long as the church endures, which will be for all eternity, the Christian is always part of an us. The local church takes the theory of Christianity and makes it tangible in love, deed, and especially in prayer. So as the church, we are reminded of God's love for his people, and we are here to show that love to each other. And I know that we may feel alone right now in this time of isolation and uncertainty, but I promise you, in Christ, we are never truly alone. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who are united to us. They were united to us before this pandemic, and they are united well far into the future. And so finally we get to number three. We have a job to do. So to point back to what Pastor Wayne preached about last week, we are Christ's workmanship. We are created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were created to glorify the Lord. The church was created to glorify him. So our joint effort should be to show the goodness of God in whatever we do. We know that Christ has not come back, so that means there is still work to be done. We can't lose sight that, of the thing that, that Christ has brought us together for, that, that we have the opportunity as his church to unite together and to advance his kingdom here on earth. We are waiting for him to return, and we want to be ready. So as the church, that is our job. We have the gospel mission to to, to go out into the world and to tell people about the saving love and grace of Jesus Christ. So in, in the short amount of time that we've spent together this morning, I hope that you've been able to see that, that we are united, not just to Jesus Christ as the, as the chief cornerstone. We are united to each other as his church. So let's pray together. Dear Lord, I just pray that as we've gone through this, that we're thankful for how you've united us to yourself, that, that you have uh, torn down the dividing wall of hostility, not just between Jew and Gentiles, but between ourselves and you. And I pray that we don't lose sight of the fact that we are your church, that we are here to serve you, and we love you and we praise you. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.